0: Welcome to episode five of On The Mark with Peter Buckley and Mark O'Donnell. Our podcast is dedicated to helping Christians target the right priorities in their apostolic and interior lives.
1: Well, welcome once again to On The Mark. I want to thank everybody for joining us on this episode, and I want to thank, as always, Mark O'Donnell for joining us and providing us with his uh, wisdom and insight. Welcome, Mark. Thanks for having me, Peter. I guess I just have to let you know, Mark, in this episode, for this episode, I'm sitting in a dark room, no heat on, wearing my hair shirt, eating uh, my locusts and wild honey. Uh, in service to the topic for today, which is asceticism. And this, again, as in the previous episode where we took an excerpt from uh, a book by Romano Guardini and we looked at a chapter on truthfulness, this episode will be focusing on the chapter on asceticism. And I guess just before we launch into it, Mark, probably best to use the definition that uh, Guardini used he, in, in his short chapter on asceticism. He says it's derived from the Greek word sysgesis, meaning practice and exercise, exercise in the proper directing of one's life. He begins the chapter by conceding, <laughs> this may not necessarily be the most interesting topic, it's not a popular one, admitting that when asceticism is discussed, it is usually with scorn or annoyance, and many considering it even unnatural. And I'm wondering if maybe you can offer some thoughts on why such resistance to discussing this virtue.
0: Oh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, words conjure up images. And unfortunately, the word asceticism can conjure up the image of a, an emaciated monk living in the desert alone, you know, with a skull on his work table to remind him of death. And that's not an image that's very attractive to people uh, that does not inspire one to want to imitate it. So I think that's what Guardini's referring to uh, when he says the, the word annoys people. I, I think a better... Uh, image of asceticism would be like a marathon runner running the last five miles of a marathon or professional quarterback you know john elway or tom brady leading a game-winning drive you know at the end of the game you know or a military leader leading his troops to victory in a final battle you get that sense of of you know self-denial challenge overcoming obstacles because self-denial i mean it's actually the only way to accomplish anything meaningful in life i mean they're you know and that requires a practice in right living and that's what asceticism is i mean you can think of asceticism in different branches i mean there's there's business asceticism best practices legal asceticism you know obeying the laws athletic asceticism training you know social asceticism living manners propriety and then there's spiritual asceticism trying to be holy so all of those practices require some level of self denial it's just that the spiritual is not seen. And so it's, 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 more, we're more reluctant to do it. And it's not really a problem with the practices because people do self denial all the time. It's more a problem with faith and believing that God's word is true and that I should obey it and I should try to build a relationship with God who is spirit. I don't know if that's 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 a good answer for you, but that's no,
1: good. And then, an important point he makes early on in the chapter, he discusses there's or mentions that there's a, a distinction between man and animals in the way they modulate their urges and desires. And he tells us in nature, there's this interior drive, and it, it expresses itself in an external action. You know, if an animal is satisfied, it stops eating. If it's rested. It, it gets up and, and so on. And while he admits it would be foolish to set up the life of an animal as the measure of the life of man, he does offer this major distinction between man's urges in and those of animals. So what is that?
0: Well, I think that's a great part of the chapter, because people make this mistake all the time. And they say, uh, you know, all, all men are dogs or, you know, or whatever, whatever comparison they want to they want to make. And the reality is we couldn't be animals even if we wanted to be. I mean, the animal is protected. It acts on instinct. I mean, that's why you don't see any fat deer running around. You know, they don't, they, they don't overeat. You don't see 500 squirrels running down your street attacking a bunch of other squirrels, you know, because someone stole their nuts. They don't they, they don't behave that way. So what happens with, with us, as Guardini explains well in the chapter, is that our spiritual nature elevates our urges and it frees them from this organic structure so they they're free to roam and that's why you need asceticism to kind of okay well now these all these forces are free and how do i regulate them or channel them in the right direction so that i can live a productive joyful happy life
1: yeah the big distinction there in, there, in separating us from animals of course and he mentions this pretty prominently in the chapter is this idea that we're guided by the spirit. And so in short, it's the spirit that elevates man above his urges. And he, Cordini states that asceticism means that a man resolves to live as a man. And so and I'm wondering, you know, are these urges that we all have, you know, men have, men have, are they bad? Is there a way to bring these innate urges in, into proper order?
0: Yeah, I mean, I think if we just observe the environment, I mean, look at the you know, just read the news. You know, the domestic violence, uh, the obesity epidemic, alcohol and drug addiction, the rise of suicide among the young and elderly, the gender confusion, the collapse of the marital structure, the acceptance of bribery by government officials—all these are are urges run amok. You know, and I'm surprised people don't see this more clearly and realize, okay. These things have to be reined in and controlled so that they can be productive and helpful for people as opposed to, you know, just destroying them. I mean, you know, one of my colleagues at work wasn't maybe a year or two ago. It was a really tragic incident. I mean, his wife had an affair uh, with somebody and my colleague uh, you know, he bought a gun, learned how to use it and went and confronted the guy who also had a gun and they had a big gunfight outside of a hotel down near Mansfield, Mass., <laughs> you know, and, and he shot the guy, thought he killed him, and then he went back to his car and killed himself. And this is somebody who was just sitting next to me at the office, you know, a week or two before. It wasn't like, you know, this isn't going down to some drug-infested area. Um, and so I talked to my boss about it. I said, what's going on? You know, how did this happen? And she said, well, he just didn't have the coping mechanisms in place to be able to deal with this. And I was like, yeah, that's kind of an understatement, but <laughs> but it's uh, it's true, you know. If if we don't live the spiritual asceticism, we don't have the inner strength. And what is that inner strength? Well, how did Jesus endure the passion? You know, all these people screaming at him and beating him up and spitting on him and everything else. Well, he has this inner strength to know I've got to do this to redeem humanity. Well, that's the strength that you'll get if you if you. You know, if, if you live a spiritual asceticism, we'll live the practices uh, associated with that. And that's very valuable.
1: Yeah, I think when we talk about these urges and so forth, there is a ten- tendency to go to the extreme, like in that anecdote you just shared with us. But I think all of us have a, this urge um, to become, and I'm going to use the words of Pope Francis here, uh, couch potatoes. He, and, and this was an address that he gave back in, April of this year, when he was in Budapest, uh, addressing a group of youths. And he basically was saying, look, I mean, uh, really, in essence, what what you were just commenting on and do the will of God and become the best version of yourself. Otherwise you, 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 you will get in the danger of becoming a couch potato. And we confuse happiness with the sofa. You know, we think, uh, all we need to be happy is a comfortable sofa. It makes us feel safe and calm and, it allows us to escape the world of, uh, or into the world, I guess, of video games and all this. And, and it keeps us away, or we think it keeps us away from any kind of pain and fear, you know, what he termed the sofa happiness. And I think, as he described, it's one of the most insidious forms of paralysis that can cause harm to people, young people certainly, but to people generally. And then he, he went on and he said, look, we should be alive and active and ready to take charge and... And I'm saying, quoting now, he says, "Those who dare win the prize." I mean, those. And he said, "Okay, well, how do you win? What, what do you win? Well, how you win in life is as you, you as you do in sports. You aim high, and then you train. And there's the asceticism that that you're talking about, right? And how do you train is first you, you you dialogue with with Christ, who's you know our best coach. He he listens to you, he encourages you, and he believes in you. And you know, I think that's." Um, as I considered this, and as you just shared that anecdote with us, you know, the urges we all have, they may not be as base and as extreme as what you just described. And so I think we want to, as a very fundamental level, see if we can avoid at least getting off the couch in, the, in that condition of couch potato that Pope Francis mentioned. He mentions uh, Guardini now, moving away from Pope Francis. He talks about a, there's a hierarchy of values in living this virtue. What is he getting at there?
0: Well, I think there are different levels. You know, there's the material, the material values—how our bodies operate, how the world operates, the material world. You know, there's social values—how we interact with others at home, at work, in society. You know, the intellectual values—how we process and adopt ideas—and then there's spiritual values. You know, how we interact with God. And all of those—we have all those values within us. And the issue is that. And uh, Pope Benedict says this in Salt of the Earth is that if our relationship with God is not good, then we really can't have a relationship with other people. That's good. And at first you're thinking, well, gee, that's, that's kind of extreme, isn't it? But when you reflect on it, you realize, no, that's really true. I mean, if we're cut off from God completely, then we're just going to look at other people as wh- who can help me. What can I get out of this person? What do I need this person to do for me right now? And we've all, you know, met people like that, and we've been that way when we're cut off from God. So, you know, we know that, you know, a bad boss is, you know, it's, it's a nightmare, you know, it's just a freaking nightmare. Um, I remember when I started in real estate, I had a mentor, you know, who wasn't Catholic, Christian, He was a good guy, really experienced and everything. And, uh, you know, I was just asking basic questions and trying to be honest about what I thought clients should do and so forth. And he looked at me, he said, you know, either you're, you know, really honest and a good person or you're, or you're an excellent faker. <laughs> he said, I don't think you're a faker. You know, and I think this is just what the business needs. And I'm thinking to myself, OK. Um, and then he went about trying to get more of a commission out of me than he was due. So I was like, <laughs> you know, but, but the point is we all have to be with people like that, you know, and, and all these different jobs, these different businesses, organizations, institutions, they need good, committed Catholic men and women working within them. And this is how you change the world is you change the people who are just immediately around you. You know, you don't change the whole institution of you know, Al- Allied Signal or Manny Hanny or William Ravis. You just impact the people around you because the reality is those institutions are not going to be around that long. I mean, if you look at my resume, most of those companies are gone, hmm. but the people are I still know the people who used to work there, but they're, those companies are gone, you know, so we shouldn't get too obsessed with kind of, well, we just need to get control of the company and somehow we can dictate how everybody behaves and so forth. The better way is just to train ourselves in these aesthetical practices so that we can be a positive influence on those immediately around us.
1: Um, That's good. He mentions as he continues in the uh, chapter, that simply following our urges and, and desires you know, undoubtedly, that could lead us to some moments of, of real near-term, short-term pleasure and satisfaction, but ultimately it's a prescription to self-destruction. How does the virtue of asceticism act as, you know, a, a governor to help regulate or properly order these desires?
0: Well, I, I mean, I just think of it as training in good practices, whether those practices, as I said before, in business, athletics, academics, any other worthwhile venture. no, one, You're not going to accomplish anything unless you, deny yourself and push yourself. Now, it's different in the, in the spiritual area because faith is required, you know, and the change is a spiritual change. And, you know, I, I mean, I can just look at, you know, in Opus Dei, we have a certain, you know, plan of life that we live and we try to live every day and we have different ascetical practices that we try to practice that are not unique to Opus Dei. They've been in the church for 2,000 years, but they're effective, you know, and they help. And we grow in virtue by practicing them. You know, I mean, I had another example from work where I had a woman call me. She was selling her house in Natick. This is years ago. And uh, and she was, her husband had left her, you know, and she was kind of a mess. And she had a really nice house. It'd probably be worth like a million one today. So I called one of my colleagues and asked her if she would come with me. We both went in and. We started working with this woman. We got the listing. We got the house cleaned up. And back then, we didn't have all these electronic forms where you could just instantaneously get things signed off on. So you had to go visit with the client to have them sign paperwork kind of regularly, you know, price changes, things like that. So every time we went to visit with this particular person, she would retell the story of her divorce to us. And it was long and cumbersome. And after a while, it was kind of, oh, no, here we go again, you know. So eventually my colleague said, look, I can't deal with this anymore. You just go, you go deal with her. You know, you seem to have some rapport and just get the paperwork signed off. And, and, and I was able to do that. And the reason I was able to do that, I think is because I've been trying to live the spiritual asceticism, which helped me live patience, right. And understanding, which otherwise I wouldn't have had, you know, I just would have been impatient and, and irritated by the whole thing. So there's a kind of a concrete example that we're how it's going to help you just in your, in your daily life. I mean, in family life, I think it would help you even more because the intimacy is more intense than it is in work. You
1: know? Yeah, you mentioned divorce, you know, the final third of the chapter, Gordini, he seems to shift from the esoteric to the more practical, starting with describing the dissolution of friendships. Due to not living this virtue well and then he comments on on marriages and he says explicitly he says you know that marriages grow dull and empty and i'm wondering in your consideration of things why do so many marriages grow dull and empty
0: well i i think it's uh there's not enough of an emphasis on building a spiritual life in and through marriage i mean marriage is a fantastic <laughs> vocation uh you know, St. John Henry Newman says it is it is literally the school of self-denial. And that's true. There's so many opportunities to sacrifice yourself for your spouse and kids and others. But if you don't have the spiritual resources to do that, you know, it can become very, very difficult. And it can it can become almost impossible to do that. So I, I think, you know, what I would do is and this is just based on trying to help out 100 married men become Saints is I would try to pray the Rosary with your spouse every day uh, give, you know it's a bonding exercise if your kids participate great and I, I'd also kind of do some spiritual reading together and discuss like this book is a great book to discuss with your spouse you know because in the book ordini in every chapter at the end of it he talks about the particular virtue in relationship to marriage. And I think that that's a great thing for spouses to read and to talk about amongst themselves. But ultimately, you know, we're going to have to build a strong spiritual life in order to have a strong relationship with anyone. I, I just think it's more important in marriage um, because you can actually grow very, your relationship very deeply. The more you love God, the more you're going to love your wife and your kids. And also, the more you're going to love your in laws or people that you may not like, mm-hmm. you're going to be able to deal with them. You're going to be able to be patient with them. So, the spiritual asceticism is a key to strengthening those bonds, you know, and, and, and that is what's going to strengthen society and the world because all vocations come out of families. You know, they, they, they don't just grow on trees, they all come out of families. And the family is the is the breeding ground for, you know, for for all of humanity, but also sp- spiritual
1: vocations. I read this article recently, and I guess it was a kind of an admonishment to, you know, faithful Catholics, you know, uh, Catholics trying to live there, um, struggling to live their faith well. In a sense, I guess the spirit of the article was, you know, be careful, you're not exempt from... What's happening with the dissolution of marriages? I mean, and, and the divorce. And but as the article went on, they interviewed uh, a couples, and you know, a couple of them had, you know, one was an abandoned father. His name, you know, his name was Rob, and he said, "Look," uh, he said, "My marriage fell apart because, it, but because of pride." And quoting from him, he says, "Both of us became guilty of self righteousness. We both thought it was more important to be right than to be happy." And that's a killer for marriage. So we could, you know, this whole idea of asceticism was not lived there. They then quoted this guy, Rick, and he said, if you want to have a good marriage, and he was married to this woman, Val, for 35 years, he said, I think this is an important quote, sometimes you have to be willing to make yourself uncomfortable for love's sake. And that's asceticism. And he's talking about, you know, generosity, the willingness to do those things that, you know, communicate love and respect or tentative to attentiveness to their spouse, even when they don't make sense to you. And, you know, that's a citizen and that's what prevents a marriage from growing, from growing ill and empty. Yeah, that's excellent. Yeah, I mean, he actually, he went further and he said, uh, he said, look, to sum it up, he said, I would rather do something that I didn't like with Val, his wife, than something I did like without her. She's my best friend. And when I learn about the things that are important to her, I learn more about myself. She's opened me up to the worlds I would never have discovered on my own. And I like to think I've done the same for her. And I think, you know.
0: That's a great quote. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And that's the real deal. That guy, 35 years in the battle and, you know, very, very happy with his marriage. Uh, so we, Gordini goes on, he talks about life having many st- strata you know what does he what does he mean by this not necessarily the, the, the term strata but what's he mean in the context of this well i, I think he means
0: that the, you know the the four values we were discussing earlier um you know the the, the material the, the, the you know the social intellectual and spiritual and we just need to give priority to the spiritual practices in our lives so that we can manage the other value categories appropriately you know without that spiritual north star you know we become you know, we just become selfish and we enslave to our lower drives and urges and end up serving and worshiping them. Um, so it's easy to forget about our spiritual practices under the guise that we need to take care of material things at home. But the most important thing you can give your family is to be truly present and attentive to them when you know you're when we're actually together. If we do this, they will value these moments more than any amount of money or material gifts that we can give them. If we don't do it, you become an ATM, you know, where people just withdraw money or spiritual or emotional support from you and leave you. Um, I mean, there's kind of a sad story about a gentleman who, uh, who attended a conference uh, about 10 years ago on fatherhood and so forth. And he described how he was very successful at his job and made a lot of money and provided lots of things for his family for many years. And then he, you know, he went on one of these conferences and said, well, I should really dial it back, spend more time with my family. So he got a lesser paying job, but it enabled him to be at home more. And after a while, one of his kids came up to him and said, Hey dad, you know, we need these different things, you know? And he said, well, I don't have enough money to buy those now. I'm spending more time with you guys. And so the kid left and didn't think much of it. Then about a week later, he came back and said, You know, Dad, I think you should go back and take the job you had before because we need that money. And it was just it was, he and he realized he said it was just too late at that point. You know, I, yeah. You know, that's <laughs> I had become this this ATM to my for my family, and that, and that was it, you know.
1: Yeah, yeah. I didn't have the
0: personal relationship with them. And yeah, so that's, that's uh, but you know, that's that's a tough thing to handle. I mean, what do you do at that point, you know? Um,
1: <laughs> yeah, he uh, it's interesting in this he you know Gordini he, he describes the meaning of life, and I'm gonna you know, just quote it. He says, the meaning of life does not consist in enjoying one's own sensations and powers, but in bringing about the fulfillment of the task assigned to us. Man lives truly and fully if he knows his responsibility. If he carries out the task that awaits him, and if he meets the needs of the persons entrusted to him. So I just, you know, I'm asking you if you may be, I want to focus on this notion of meeting the needs of people entrusted to us, particularly as it applies to parents. And there exists the possibility, as I see it, that in order to pursue the living or living this virtue of asceticism more fully as a parent, perhaps imprudently you know, a, a parent, maybe I'm thinking more specifically a father may impose on the family unnecessary conditions of sacrifice and renunciation, leading to a challenging life for the whole family, not just a life full of challenges. And so I'm wondering for, you know, for parents today, what is that balance between living this virtue well, while still raising a family in which kids can, you know, compete and become forces for good in, in general society?
0: Yeah, I mean, that that's a great question. I, I think... You know, if we look at our vocation as baptized Catholics to, you know, to go into the world and to imbue it with the spirit of the gospel, God's given us certain talents. And I think we want to develop those and live up to those. Um, and, you know, St. John Henry Newman says, you know, how do you know how to behave and how to work? And he says, well, you know, live up to the light that you have and God will give you more light. And that, I think, is precisely the, the way to go. So the initial is, look, I want to try to do the best I can with what I have, and that may open up more avenues for me to grow even more. Um, so you want to balance this ambition, right, with, you know, kind of a professional temperance because you don't want to close off the space that your spiritual life needs to flourish. You know, I was thinking a lot about this, you know, because, We've talked about St. Thomas More before. And I, I think he's an ideal model of this. Because, I mean, here's somebody who, you know, early in his life, he spent several years in a monastery because he thought he might have that vocation. And so he developed, a, you know, the spiritual practices that he needed to to, to to have a prayer life and to have a relationship with God. And then he realized that wasn't for me. And so then he got married and uh, you know, and he began his career, and he did extremely well um, with that. but he kept these spiritual practices going, right? And so even though he became famous and had this you know enormous estate um, uh, and he had a you know a nice family, uh, the marriages that he had were a little bit challenging, uh, both of them, but he did well with them. But most importantly, is he was able to witness for the truth because he kept, you know, for instance, in his life, he, he didn't drink alcohol. OK. And he uh, reportedly wore a hair shirt uh, as a as, as a penitential practice. All right. But he still, you know, he had a, a a nice property. He ate well. He had a nice family. So there was a balance there. You know, he wasn't giving up everything. He was giving up some things. And that enabled him then to bear witness to the truth and to persevere when everyone else was capitulating. Right. Uh, and well, so that's I, perfect, I look perfect at
1: example.
0: That, Yeah. You know, and I'm thinking, well, what if he had decided, well, I don't want to be, you know, the chancellor, you know, you know, for the king. I don't want this big job. I'm just going to go and teach in the local high school. You know and you think okay well well he never would have done what he did
1: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: so even though he had the opportunity to get anything he wanted i mean if he had just signed that oath he could have doubled his real estate holdings all of his kids would have been given great jobs you know he could have had whatever he wanted mm-hmm. to write his own ticket and yet he doesn't because he realizes this is not the way you know god because of that interior life that he had developed that spiritual life he had developed and and, and, and the wrongness of what was going on. So I think that is a good, he's a good example. I mean, people yeah. don't think that they're anywhere near Thomas More, but you should read this biography. It's called Born for Friendship, and we'll put it in the, uh, in the, the show notes. notes. Born yeah. for Friendship, the Spirit of Sir Thomas More by Bernard Bassett. It's just a basic biography. It's not a puff piece. And it talks about both of his marriages, his vocational discernment process, his ups and downs. And when you read it, you realize, you know, that's not that different from from my life. Mm. I may not have all the talent he's got, but I got some talent. That's and I great. Think you want to encourage your kids to have that balance and to push the talent as much as they can so they can impact the world for good.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. Let's wrap it up here, Mark, just okay. uh, as with, you know, other virtues in order to live a virtue well, it has to be practiced. What are some practical ways we can live this virtue of asceticism in, in our everyday ordinary lives?
0: I mean, I, I think you can get a plan of life template from from anybody, really. Um, sorry for that phone interruption. Um, but I would, you know, I would I, I would have I would get to mass as often as you can receive communion. I would read the gospel every day, do some spiritual reading, say the rosary. Then I would just look at all your chores that you're already doing around the house and offer those up for different people in your family, people you work with, so forth.
1: You know, just I'm going to interrupt just for a second because you mentioned the rosary. In that address that Pope Francis had made back in April, when he was in Hungary, he mentioned there's a great musician. I mean, his name is Franz Liszt late 19th century Hungarian composer. And he mentioned that what they were restoring his piano and what they discovered is they were cleaning it up. There were a few beads from his rosary were found. The, the rosary had broken and the beads had fallen into, you know, into the cracks in the piano. And it just, it, it made the impression to the Pope that before a composition or performance um, you know, or just a simple moment of joy with the piano. It, it was usual for him to pray. He spoke to, our, you know, our Lord and our Lady, and about what he loved, and he brought his art and talents to prayer. And so, you know, when when we pray, we won't, you know, we shouldn't be afraid to bring to Jesus everything that's going on in our lives, and and you know, everything: our emotions, our fears, our problems, expectations, our memories, and hopes. As in this, I'm quoting the Pope here, as he says it. So it's uh, that when you mentioned the rosary that brought that anecdote to mind, but if you look it. at this composer is world-class and forgive me for my demonstrating or unveiling my cultural ignorance, but this, is a, this guy's a big deal. And to this day, and here's a guy prior to performance, you know, so, you know, who knows says a full rosary, but at least as his rosary beads and sing a decade or so. But yeah, so I'm sorry. So continue on, on your prescription here for.
0: No, I, mean, I, I think that that, that's pretty much it. The, the point is, you know, you need to add in this spiritual practices, but the other ones we're already doing, you just need to give them a, a, you know, a spiritual intention and you need to offer them to God. I mean, you're already cleaning up the garage and taking out the trash and cutting the lawn and cleaning the gutters, you know, and hopefully, you know, cleaning up your room. And making sure the bathrooms are clean and all these different things you know so you, you that's the, that's the beauty of the marital structure you know is that you really have that all in place so what you need to do then is, is is let this irrigation system fill it with grace fill it with water so that it can then you know go out and and irrigate the world you know and yeah so for sure life can grow in others
1: yeah, so let's wrap it up there. So, I didn't mention fully the, in, in this episode the title of the book that we've been focusing on, and it's Learning the Virtues uh, That Lead Us, that Lead You to God, Leading the Virtues of Lead You to God by Romano Gordini. And so, we'll put that in the show notes as well, in addition to what Mark just referenced as the Thomas More book. And why don't we conclude this by first thanking you, Mark, again for joining us, your time, your insight. Appreciate it.
0: Yeah, you're very welcome. You Thanks know, for having way. me.
1: Yeah, and then we'll just conclude with a quote from Pope Francis, which he posed to this audience. Each one of us should ask the uncomfortable question, what am I doing for others, for the church, for society? Do I think only about myself, or do I put myself on the line for others without calculating my own interests? Let us reflect on our ability to be generous, our ability to love as Jesus taught us, which is by serving others. So I want to thank everybody for joining us again. We look forward to speaking to you on the next episode of On The Mark. Thanks for listening
0: to On The Mark with Peter Buckley and Mark O'Donnell. If you enjoy our podcast, be sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify to be notified every time Peter and Mark release a new episode. And visit us on the web at
1: onthemark.show.